So hello and welcome to another episode of Rebel City Podcast. What will this be now, Matt? 106, 105? 106, I think it is. I forgot to check before one. We'll say, we'll say that e- 106. Episode number bingo, as we always have. But um, continuing on for the last sort of month, we've been doing um, some coverage of the Scottish uh, Parliament elections, which are coming up in May. Um, we've got Bob Doris, who is an SNP candidate for MSP. How's it going, Bob? Yeah, I'm doing well, thank you. Yeah, all good. Looking good in your suit, mate. Are you get your jammies on the bottom? It's no, it's no a suit. I tell you, and if I could turn this camera around, you would see what state this room is as well. So let, let, let's not go there. The camera does lie. Yeah, mate, absolutely. Yeah. What you don't have, which just a bit of sort of constructive criticism. You need a bookshelf in the background, mate. With all your your. <laughs> well, well, do you know in the last Parliament, I chaired the Social Security Committee, and the first. Uh, one we did was in a wee room through there. I was doing it virtually with the, the, the COVID-19, the, the kind of social distance committees. And every one of these kind of like well-read uh, bookcases in the background. And I had a pink bunk bed in the background. With <laughs> on. So it just is what it is. Uh, I don't know feeling. It's, it's tripped a few folk up, so maybe it's better to avoid sometimes. Eh? Um, Absolutely. So... Um, like some of the other candidates we spoke with, we came along and Kieran O'Neill, um, you're actually like a candidate in, in my local area. Um, I actually voted for you last time. So you have the distinguished pleasure of being the only politician or political idea or anything of that nature that I've voted for that I actually won. Um, oh, so right. Excellent. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Had <laughs> to happen sooner or later. You know what Absolutely. I mean? I'll keep my fingers crossed then. Certainly. Everything that I've voted for as well, apart from the Scottish Parliament elections, I'm the exact same. Everything I've voted for since Blair, unfortunately, um, has um, uh, resulted in a defeat. So it's good to speak to, like, when we talk about the Scottish Parliament, it's nice to know that my vote actually, like, you know, counts towards what, or I get a result that I want, I suppose. It's, uh, they all count, but... Um, Aye, I'm in the same boat. Everything's ended in the defeat, so it is nice to talk to somebody that you voted for and uh, has made it. Brilliant, thank you. So, um, with the campaign kicking off in the last week, obviously we jumped the gun a few weeks earlier with, with other candidates, but it seems to have obviously really officially started in the last week or so. Um, last night we had the, the sort of first of the leaders' debates. Um, how do you feel the first minister got on? I think Nick Nicola did did fine. You'd expect me to say that. I have to paint a picture for, for me watching the leaders' debate last night. I was I was building flat pack furniture uh, at the same time as watching the leaders' debate. Well, I'm expecting um, my second child in a few weeks' time, so there's there's, there's stuff to be, there's stuff to be built. So um, yeah, I, I thought Nic- Nicola did well. Um, it was always really interesting that it wasn't necessarily the first minister that was bringing up Scottish independence. As we often say, it's not exactly a state secret. The SNP wants Scottish independence. Uh, When do we want it? As soon as possible, as soon as practically possible. And Nicola last night was was saying, look, let's get through COVID. Let's build back better, as all the parties are saying. But the most important thing in the debate, of course, is uh, once this so-called magic money tree disappears, from the UK government, which is borrowed money, of course, you know, you know it's the taxpayers that are paying it back. We yeah. saw in 2009-2010 when a UK government turns on austerity, the impact that has on communities. So I thought Nicola was making a really strong point that yeah. 
the best way to come through COVID and build back better is to have the full normal powers of an independent parliament. But the really interesting thing was it wasn't Nicola pushing that point. Nicola was pushing, let's get through COVID safely. You'd know we believe in independence. It seemed others that were desperate to talk about independence. So I found that really quite interesting. Mm-hmm. I've got to say for uh, for uh, opposition parties who want to talk about something other than independence, they'd spend a hell of a lot of time talking about independence. Um, and I think probably last night was another example of that. Um, Do you think that's because they've got nothing else to talk about? Um, I, I think maybe opposition parties are struggling to make a positive case for the UK. In fact, no, let, let me take that back. I, I don't think that's what it is. I think there's a lot of common ground in the Scottish Parliament. And I suspect, maybe with the Tories to one side, that most of the things that the SNP and the Scottish Government have done, that in their heart of hearts, the other parties probably agree with and think it's probably the right direction of travel. And there, there's a lot of consensus and agreement. And the issue with elections, of course, is you have to magnify differences come election time to have a unique selling point. So if you don't want to acknowledge that the decisions taken by an incumbent government are probably, by and large, the right ones and sensible things to do. You have to go where the, the fault lines, the differences are, and I suppose that brings us back to the Constitution. Yeah, I think I've got a question on that just before we, we get into the actual questions that's on the sheet. Um, do you think that because, you know, Jeremy Corbyn tried to come out with a positive sort of, here's what I'm going to do, Right, free broadband. We know everything that, that, and whether or not you agree with Corbyn's uh, outlook on politics and where he sees the UK going is is part of my, my question. But do you think that a, a more negative style of um, politics is seen as like a winning formula off of the back of like Trump? And because Boris and his his party never really said much other than get Brexit done and other sort of punchlines, it's almost like politics has been reduced down to, look how bad the other side will be, vote for me, rather than here's what I can do to have a positive impact on your life. I, I really hope that's that's not the case. It, it, it's increasingly a tactic by some folk involved in politics, but I mean, what's the point of being politics when it offered to improve people's lives? You know, it's easy to point at someone else and say, look what you should have done. Um, it's much more difficult to say, here's what I would do. I think budget processes in parliaments are pretty good examples of that, where it's, it's very easy. In, in all parliaments, I should point out, I'm not even just saying the Scottish Parliament, where opposition parties can can find it easy to say, look, look you, you haven't done enough, and then when you turn around and say, what would your perspectives be? They struggle to come up with alternatives. And sometimes you're allowed to agree when a, you know, a party and government does something that, that's reasonable, but I think the political culture we've got is one where you, you have to score political points. And I hope that, I genuinely hope that changes. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Me yeah. too. I've got to say so as well. And I think when we're talking about, you know, touching on the First Minister, touching on some of the, the criticism for the opposition, some of the attacks, uh, as Paul's mentioned, like for this entity that's only about independence like I think the way both the party, the government and particularly the First Minister have handled themselves during the Covid crisis is something that getting into the election the party can be sort of really proud of because I think when we look round and we see some of the failures of leadership elsewhere 
Um, I've certainly been reassured through this that the First Minister has been, I mean, relentless. I mean, I can actually see moments where the real human impact has hit her. We can also see the, the, the times where she's really out there sort of fighting. And it seems odd to me that the political criticism would be, oh, you're all about independence when, you know, she's actively taken whatever 300-odd press briefings in the last 365 days and mentioned party politics, like, once or twice when she's been forced to. Um, how do you go up against criticism that doesn't really have any basis in reality? Well... I don't, I don't know the, I don't know the answer to that. To be honest, I think you sometimes just have to stay focused on what you believe in and what you think the right thing to do is. And I do think that Nicola has tried to stay focused on the COVID pandemic. And I, I think if we go back to the start, geez, it seems like a lifetime ago now, doesn't it? Um, it does. Go back to the start of the pandemic. There was a whole debate around when we should have locked down or not locked down. And that debate could have revolved around in Scotland about, well, there's a financial impact to locking down and you would have to invest, as we now know, billions upon billions to support individuals, families, businesses and the economy if you lock down. And there's a whole question there about um, can could one part of the UK have, have locked down with all, all of the UK doing it at the one time? Mm-hmm. But the Scottish government and Nicola Sturgeon did not get involved in that debate. I think they did their best to sidestep all those things and try and stay in lockstep with the other nations and regions of the UK and just stay focused and get in the best possible response to COVID. Not a perfect response, a response where there's clearly been mistakes and errors made, and they've been admitted pretty frankly, but try to do the right thing rather than play the politics on it. Absolutely. I think that that's that there's a key thing in there that you just said there, Bob, about like the differences. Um and it it's clearly highlighted in the SQA thing that happened. It wasn't it great public relations, the whole sort of exam school thing where they, they, they tried to just do a general sort of hitting out in uh, the grades. But the first minister came out and admitted that they had done it wrong and they were going to turn it back and get it right. And that for me is missing across all politics, where politicians are so scared at admitting that they've done something wrong, that they, they could never do that, you know what I mean? Like, I, I can't imagine Boris, David Cameron, Gordon Brown, Tony Blair, so like our last, Theresa May, like our last five Prime Ministers of the UK, ever standing up and going, by the way, we made a mistake and I'm going to do everything to go back and, and undo that. They just hit it with like, no, no, here's what we did. No, we did right. And it's like this, you can't admit defeat. And it's it's wildly infuriating that you you vote for people and they can't even admit when they've done something wrong. You know what I mean? I, I mean, I think the, the exams fiasco and it was it was it was it was not good. Let let's just be pretty blunt about it. When when the reality broke and I became aware of it, the same day I was phoning the secondary school head teachers of the schools in my constituency to specifically ask, well, how's it impacted in your schools and your departments, and it was varying. It was it, it was varying, and then within a couple of days, I, I was I was on the phone to government saying, "Look, here's what's happened, and what are you going to do to fix it?" And the hands up that as a as a backbench politician of government, I'm I'm not shouting in the media about all of this. I'm just trying to 
assiduously and professionally go about fixing what had clearly went wrong and had to be fixed. And I yep. think that's ultimately what the Scottish government did. But they're still... I find the whole thing quite ironic because had we initially just given, and we should have actually, had we just given the teacher estimate grades at the first point of asking, we'd have pretty much closed much of the attainment gap overnight by but by doing that, yeah. and I'm pretty sure we'd have been ridiculed for doing for doing that as I think well. we kind of spoke about this but, at the time where it was a bit like the figures that were being submitted would have been record-breaking, and I think these were a bit damned if you do, damned if you don't. I think when you look at how other administrations were going to approach it, it was in very similar terms until, obviously, the, the Scottish government faced a bit of a backlash before people then, you know, tried to sugar about their systems and stuff like that. But I think a lot of what you face is, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't. I think it touches on what we've mentioned already, way. things like COVID and, you know, we'll talk about it in terms of the manifesto pledges as well, because as much as independence is there in the current manifesto pledges, like there are some really exciting pledges in there that are about the everyday lives of Scottish people improving um, and they're getting a bit lost in the, oh, well, hold on, they're asking for independence again. And you're like, well, of course they are, as you say, of course they are, because that's their main purpose. Can I just say one thing about, I know we're going to move on from, from, from education, but um, the actual, the really remarkable people in this whole thing where the students themselves who got themselves empowered and organised and part of the Scottish curriculum that's taken a bit of a battering recently is curriculum for excellence but that's a bit empowered and formed young citizens through the education system yeah. there's a lot of things we need to improve on with Scottish education but I tell you empowering young people to take a stand is something we've got pretty well pretty solid and we've got right and, right. Uh, and, and we deserve the heat that we got in relation to that yeah, enough. absolutely, and it's nice to hear you say that. Um, but again, again, just repeat what I had said sort of earlier on. It, it, you don't see that a lot, and I feel like actually during this pandemic, the 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 planet has kind of started to notice our first minister, um, and you see her on lists of like top ten politicians. And if you were to actually like engage with the media in the UK, you'd probably be like quite confused as to why the rest of the the world's kind of like. Well, look at what Nicola Sturgeon's doing in Scotland, whereas, you know, as Matt was saying before we come on, Mike, if you look at the BBC coverage of last night, it does not reflect <laughs> anything. It's been absolutely rock solid. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So you were mentioning the fact that, as you say, backbench, MSP, mm-hmm. um, obviously I'm familiar with myself, but for for those that are not, um, would you mind just kind of like, you know, as a wee breakdown of your, of your history, you know, in terms of what, what, have you held other political positions on the way to MSP, etc.? Yeah, I'll try to ask my politician talk. I could be here all day talking about that, but let me, let me try and be brief. We'll so, fill fill with that <laughs> a few times, to be honest with you. <laughs> that, that, um, I'm not born and bred in Maryhill. I'm a Vale leaving boy originally. I'm a Vale boy, if you know where that is. Yeah. And I grew up there, went, went to school in St. Pat's in Dumbarton. And that's where my family are from, uh, went to Glasgow University, did social science and uh, became a teacher for for, for a few years. Uh, moved moved to Mary Hill thinking I was walking, I always tell this story, thinking I was walking walking distance to Byers Road for a for a good trendy West End life and then looked north and found Mary Hill and fell in love with it. And that was 1999 and, and, and I've been here ever since, to be honest with you. I suppose Mary Hill and the Vale of Leavings get more in common with each other than the West End of Glasgow has. 
as well, I suppose. So Mary Helen Springburn is a real natural fit for me and my family, and that, that's mm -hmm. what we've found roots, and that's what we've made our lives. But politically, I stood in for a council election in Dumbarton many years ago against a, 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 a lovely man, actually, who's no longer with us, Patrick O'Neill, who was the, pro, the Labour provost in Dumbarton District Council at the time, didn't win that. Okay. I, I stood for council in North Kelvin, um, the old council ward um, in in Glasgow, didn't win that. Uh, and in 2007, uh, friends suggested that I put my name forward for the old Mary Hill seat in the Scottish Parliament uh, and also to stand on the regional list. I was, yeah. uh, I didn't win the Scottish Parliament seat um, and I will pay credit to my position, you know. There's usually a reason why people win elections. So Labour Party won the election in 2007 and, and credit to them for, for that. Uh, but I was really lucky, privileged to get in on the regional list. And up until 2007 to 2016, I've been a regional list MSP. And in 2016, biggest honour of my life was becoming the first ever constituency MSP for what is now my home, uh, who supports independence. Uh, and as an SNP MSP, and it would be an absolute privilege to continue that uh, after May the 6th. So, so that's me, really. Mm -hmm. Is the constituency Mary Hill and Springburn, am I making the right assumption that that's probably always been Labour up until yourself? Yeah, yeah. Most seats don't even make, 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 it, make, it, make an issue of, of, of that because people should get, that, that's kind of the whole point of independence, isn't it? people should get the politicians they fought for. And up in 2016, Mary Helen Springburn were voting Labour, not in huge numbers compared to the SNP, but it took us a while to get there. And, you know, um, and, and I'm, as I say, it's an honour that, that enough people showed their trust in myself and the SNP and the independence movement, actually. 57% voted yes in the independence referendum in Mary Helen Springburn. So in the independence movement... Um, <laughs> To, to vote SNP in 2016. I think that's probably what you're describing as quite indicative of the journey that the wider population has been on because probably in the you know early 2000s heading towards 2010, um, independence and the SNP were, you know, in people's minds and, and in, you know, parliament and stuff like that. Obviously in the years building up towards the referendum and subsequent, you've seen that number grow and sort of significantly swell. So I think what you're describing in sort of Springburn and Mary Hill is probably almost a bit of a microcosm of what the rest has been going through in the last sort of decade or so, you know what I mean? So it tracks in that sense. Did I read somewhere um, that you had the potential at one point to be sort of double mandated and stepped away from you? Was it a council seat or something you stepped away from you? Yeah, so I was a, I was a candidate um, in council elections and uh, the regional list rankings came out and I was I was really lucky to finish number three on the SNP's regional list rankings and things were looking good for us. Um, and I had a very good chance of being, being elected, I mean, hoping to win first past the post anyway, but, you know, um, it, it, it looked almost certain without being complacent that I would, I would get in the parliament. I would never do complacency. And I thought, why would I take two births? There's lots of good, energetic people who can represent the local community. So I stepped aside from council, gave other people the opportunity to, to do that. Because it's funny because double mandates are something that are in the sort of political conversation <laughs> at the moment. Yeah. Um, we have 
I think um, probably the biggest SNP example was the tussle between Joanna Cherry and um, was it Black? I think it's Black. Oh, sorry. I forgot his name now. Where did this? What was his, what's his surname? I'm guessing you're talking Robertson, about... sorry. Oh, oh, Angus Robertson, right. Yeah. Uh, no. So Edinburgh, whatever, South, and then we're also getting um, Douglas Ross, who wants to, well, triple mandate if we include his, um, you know, job as a linesman. Um, why was it important <laughs> to you to focus on the one thing? Why, you know, I mean, was there a specific reason? Was it just about stepping aside and letting other talent come through? Or was, did you just feel that it was the right thing to do? I just, I suppose I just felt it was the right thing to do. But I think politicians um, kind of tweak their views on dual mandates to suit the political position at any time. So I'm not even, like, <clears throat> my, my start position is, like, go for the one thing at a time and, and, and give it your best efforts. But I, I get there'll be times when it might seem sensible not to force a by-election and to run on a dual mandate, but it's not really my kind of thing and my encouragement would be that folk shouldn't do that but all parties at different times have taken different views on dual mandates to suit the political situation at that time so I'm I'm just going to leave that sitting there I'm not going to get embroiled in that but it wasn't right for me and it was right for me going forward again yeah I think the, the telling thing that you said there Bob is that you know um there is somebody there that can represent the people now, whether it's council, MP, MSP, um, it's the job of the, if you're voted in for a certain constituency, it's your job to represent them. And how can you do that when you're the leader of another and, and you've got another job to do? It's like we're told that MP, the, the, the MP jobs are already hard enough and that they should get these big 11%, 14% pay rises because it's a stressful job and they deserve their expenses. But then for yeah, I, I feel like the, the telling thing that you said is that your, your job's to represent people. If you're voted to do that, you should give it your all. It's already hard enough to do that without running the lines in a Champions League on Thursday night, you know, and then whatever. <laughs> like, with, I know you don't want to put the boot in, but I absolutely want to put the boot into somebody like Douglas Ross because I feel like that is an absolute disgrace to think that you can be an MP, an MSP, and a FIFA linesman, referee, all at the same time. Yeah. Um, I, I agree with all of that, but I have to say, if I was to, yes. you know, if I was to, if I was to rewind the clock back, jeez, I'm 47 now, before eight, um, just after the election, um, I don't know, ten years ago or 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 maybe a wee bit further back, I I, I spent more time getting angry than I did working out how 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 do we help people, and if you're not careful, focusing on the anger can take away from. What help can you offer? So, yeah, I, I agree with what you've said there, but uh, I'll let you put the boot in and I'll just charge on doing what I'm doing. Yeah, that's why I'm not in politics, <laughs> mate. <laughs> it'll, be the first time, it'll be the first time we've had a politician sit back while we put the boot in. That's pretty much what we're here for. Um, so we'll move on then. Um, one of the things <clears> we did sort of touch on was the manifesto, um, the, particularly some of the pledges. Um, I've found myself really impressed with them. Um Obviously, house building is something that's been a bit of a bone of contention um, in previous governments where promises are made and no forward. Um, I mean, are you confident that what was it? Was it hundred thousand affordable houses? I mean, it's a it's a big ask. So it's also it's, a, it's also something with a track record that delivered. No, I'll tell you what I mean by that. So in the last parliament, the policy was fifty thousand affordable houses. Uh, well, I think again with at least seventy percent 
social rent. I did need to double check that one, but we were on track to do that. And then COVID ground the construction industry to a halt. So we got to 36,000 and those other 14,000 will, will come through the pipeline. And they're not included in the 100,000 additional affordable houses over a over a 10-year period. Mm-hmm. But I think the key thing to say is that's a minimum of, um, because you could get into a bidding war, well, the SNP says 100,000, Labour could say 110. It's about it's about giving multi-year capital budgets to build social and affordable housing right across Scotland to give certainty to, to planners, to constructors, to councils, to housing associations to get involved with the regeneration that we need. And if we can get some of that capital funding um, loosened up from the purse strings at Westminster, we can potentially even go further. I mean, that's impressive. I think, you know, things like rent, things like the ability to buy houses at a young age and stuff like that are such stumbling blocks for people that any progress in this would certainly be like a feather in the hat, like any government. It was definitely one of the ones that caught my attention straight off the bat. So that have you, <clears throat> I mean, I don't know if, if this is the right way to phrase it, but have you got a, a, a favourite pledge yourself as a one that you're like, this is the one that has my fallback and I'm all about it? So I, I suppose, um, well, I have to say, I don't work at the pagan. Other than else. independence, obviously, sorry. <laughs> I, I don't know what else is going to be in the manifesto. I'll need to wait and see. I've not got the inside line on that. But um, I, I chaired the Social Security Committee the last few years. And our committee took through the Scottish Child Payment. Um, and the Scottish Government accelerated delivery of the Scottish Child Payment. Um, and I think putting money into the pockets of families that are struggling the most is always vital, but never more so now. So doubling that to £20 uh, uh, per week and also um, making sure we move quickly so it's not just for, for under sixes, but to right up to 16-year-olds, which we've always intended to do, but committing the resources to fast-track that as soon as possible. For me, that is... I hate it when politicians talk about their backgrounds and they get the violins out and they say, oh, it was, you know, when I was down pit and it's tough up north and all that kind of nonsense, right? And it's not nonsense, but you see the point I'm making, right? But I know my background, no need to get into it, but I know my background, I know my upbringing, I know what it feels like not to have money in your pocket at all. And the Scottish child payment will make, is making a huge difference. Definitely. Mm -hmm. I mean... The, the question then becomes, I think, and I, and I was really pleased. We've asked all the other candidates we've spoke to um, about UBI because it's something we've done a number of episodes on and we just are all in on it. Like, we completely believe in the efficacy. We'd love to see some format. Mm-hmm. Is that the next step? Because I know it was a big part of... There was questions, and a lot of the parties seem to come out favourably, maybe not directly in favour, but favourable towards notions of UBI, where are you on that? So uh, I mentioned to you, I up until a few weeks ago, I chaired the Social Security Committee. We just published an inqu- uh, an inquiry report into recovery from COVID. And one of the key recommendations, I have to say the Conservatives dissented from this recommendation, this will not be a surprise to you, um, was that at the very least, 
if heaven forfend we ever get to a situation where there's such an economic crisis or income shock ever again, we should be able to flick a switch and move to UBI because despite these billions of pounds, many, many people have still fallen through the gaps in support and provision and UBI plugs all those gaps and you get the money back through the tax system anyway for mm. those that don't necessarily need it. So that those inquiry findings was talking about specifically to pandemics or similar economic shocks, but in reality, I think we should move to, I would pilot it first, but I would, I would move to a universal basic income. It could solve so many problems. I think students have been let down during the pandemic. You know, students who uh, need their non-term time jobs to in, in hotels or in pubs or in restaurants or whatever, those jobs just disappeared. How are those students quite often from working-class backgrounds supposed to get that additional money? They should have been able to claim universal credit. They're precluded from claiming universal credit. Um, so there's a deficiency. Again, UBI could mop up some of that, and there'll be a thousand other examples. Yeah. I think we've got to give it a go. If we can mm -hmm. find a way of giving it a go without the cooperation of the UK government, great, but let's not give false hope on this or be yeah. naive about it. We need full power over the tax and benefit system to, to deliver this in an effective way. But if we can run a small-scale pilot and the Scottish government are taking steps to organise pilots anyway, then the sooner the better. But again, I think we need to, unfortunately, the full power here or we have to persuade a UK government, but let's see what we can do in the meantime. Yeah, yeah. Why do you I mean, think that the, the Tories are so adamantly against UBI? I mean, we and Matt, again, have spoke about universal basic income since we started this podcast with Jamie Cook on first sort of five to ten episodes, I'm pretty sure. Um, and, you know, like universal basic income actually comes from the right. It's a, it's, it's a policy that's been adopted by the left. As That, that seems like a good thing. Um, but it started in the sort of right in America, um, this idea of liberty and freedom, and this would give you the freedom to do what you like, obviously. Um, but why do you feel like this current batch of Tories are even just are just so against it? I'm, I'm tempted to speculate in the reasons for that, but then I would probably just fall into the, the kind of cliches and stereotypes about Tories. Um, and, and maybe not even the, the, the Tories, but maybe some folk, some of their core vote, who they've clearly sought to, not any individual conservative, but they've clearly sought to demonise people on benefits. Um, mm. So I think it's like tangential here, but this bit's really important to me. How come it was okay for people to be on benefits at the levels they were pre-COVID, and that was acceptable for folk, folk to struggle on that cash? But when COVID hit, and hundreds of thousands of people or millions of people entered the benefit system for the first time who had never experienced the benefit system, the UK government very quickly said, hang on, wait a minute here, universal credit, it ain't enough, let's increase it by 20 quid a week and let's have that uplift. If it's good enough for people who, and they deserve every penny of it, quite frankly, who are temporarily passing through the benefit system, and I think they are just passing through it, then for those furthest away from employment and with the most challenges, it's blooming well good enough for them once COVID's over as well. So that temporary uplift universal credit has to be made permanent. And I think it's crazy that the Conservatives haven't, have not committed to that. I hope they will, they probably won't. Um, but 
I, I just think there's a kind of cliche there, isn't there, about the people being work shy and benefit dependent. The bedroom tax is the and the benefits cap is the is the same 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 thing as well, isn't it? It's um, you know, you shouldn't have a spare room in your house, so we're not going to cover your your rent. It's penalising people in poverty, and there's a there's a narrative there over a long period of time. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that um, it, exactly what you're saying. I mean, you, you actually seen the media and everything change around about sort of 2008, and we started to see more about people on benefits and benefit street, and then it shifted over to the refugee crisis and stuff. As as me and Matt have sort of like spoke about a lot, but I feel like the 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 current Tories are a party of business. They're not a party of people. They'll quite happily give billions to their pals that own private businesses. And this is the sort of like thing that I get frustrated with when I speak to people and they're um and they're like maybe like, oh I'm I'm right wing because of one, two, and three. And you're like, but what you don't realise is is that the current right wing that are in government and in, in Britain are not what you're saying. You're talking about this idea of the right of conservatism. They're not conserving. Basically, they took all the money and they started to just fire it out to businesses instead of giving it to people who needed it the most. Instead of giving it to people to survive, they thought we'll just prop up the market. And that's where we're at. And that's not what people think when they read about conservatives and what does this ideology actually look like in a sort of... um, ideological sense rather than looking at the practicalities of what they're doing and what they're doing is is they're taking money off of poor people and giving it to their mates that own these businesses and it's a neoliberal sort of centrist thing rather than right and left do you know what i mean i think it's also probably one of the ways in which we differentiate ourselves for them because when we talk about the increase in the child payment and we talk about notions of ubi if we're ever in the position to move those levers those things are very much in line with the sort of progressive nature that a lot of us in Scotland want to see sort of more in it. And a lot of what the SNP is trying to sell us is that it's a part of our progress and progressive ideas. And like, I, they're like almost polar opposites where you've got the UBI that is almost about maintaining and supporting human dignity and austerity, which, which feels like almost the exact opposite. You know what I mean? Like, so we have got, this separation in a number of areas, obviously, you know, that have led us to all, you know, basically largely want independent nation. But I think this is one of the real, like, big ones that when we talk about progressive social policy versus regressive austerity, and we know that austerity 2.0 is coming, like, I think these types of conversations are really what light a fire under people that need to be like, right, when is independence happening? You know what I mean? Like, because... I think we're two nations that are on completely different paths and I don't see how we cohesively come together as a whole anymore for exactly the reasons that Bathies have just mentioned. You know what I mean? Yeah, but I have to, I have to say, I mean, I, I want, the underlying point of independence for me is that those who stay in Scotland are best placed to make decisions uh, for, for, for Scotland. There's a, there's a kind of basic democratic principle there. Yeah. Not, not any better or worse than any other nation no. region in the UK or the world. But but also, I think people elsewhere in the UK are fed a diet of misinformation about Scotland, about being subsidy junkies and 
and, and, and everything else. And I think if they see Scotland making a success of independence, and it won't always be easy, but we will, they'll start demanding better from their governments. So I actually think it's to the benefit of the whole of the UK, not just Scotland. Mm-hmm. Amazingly put. Aye, show, them to show people there's another way, because aye, the path they're on, they need another way. I, I, on, on the notion of like sort of progressive ideas in line with the, the election pledges and that, um, I really liked um, the notion of school children getting digital devices. Um, we live in the 21st century. I work in an industry that is very old school. There's a lot of paper and a lot of pens. And it, honest to God, makes my skin itch. So it does that because we live in a digital age. So I'm actually really like encouraged by the notion that although maybe circumstances forced our hand a wee bit because of everybody having to work from home and study from home and so on and so forth. But I think that on the other side of the pandemic that we're actually going, no, this is at least partially the way forward is really encouraging. Um, I mean, what's, what's the thing? I mean, critics are saying it should have happened already. Users are saying it's here now and it's not gone anywhere. What, you know, what do you want us to think on it? So it was happening already. Um, tens of thousands, I think Connecting Scotland gave out 60,000 laptops during the, the, the pandemic. Um, I was actually looking for the before 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 we did the before we did the podcast, but I couldn't see, so I have to go back and check it. Mm-hmm. But schools, I know schools were giving out uh, devices. Glasgow's actually Glasgow, you know, actually does a lot of things. It has to do better, but it's done quite well with digital devices quite often. And it's not just about giving it the devices; it's giving it the data as well, which is which is vitally important. So it has been happening, and it's not a new thing. My reading of this is it's a there's been an emergency response in relation to laptops and data. We're, we're getting through that. This is identifying there's a basic right now, isn't there, to be digitally connected? And how do we make sure that right is embedded from young people from the earliest age? Are these kids living in a digital world? Like... So, you do, so you do it in a structured fashion. And it's not just the device, it's the connectivity as well. So this is, the, for my view, this is the next phase of the COVID response, the emergency response, we're getting through that. This is to the what this is the what next bit now. And it's about how do you embed uh, th- th- this new way of working uh, for young people right through education and, and for lifetime. I, I would love is I don't know if this flies or not, other folk have mentioned it as well. So I'm not trying to say it's my idea, but effectively um there's a universal I would love to say a universal service obligation on internet providers to say as a right to to have an internet connectivity. And if you want to be licensed in this country to do all the things you do, you've got to make sure that uh, for free of charge or for nominal charge, that that connectivity just happens. I suspect there's some deals being struck behind the scenes in terms of the data and all that. So I'm sure there's, there's good partnership working, but ultimately uh, I think there has to be a universal service for data and connectivity and the internet going forward because it, 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 it's essential let's be honest about it yeah i mean i worked at a, a major isp up until <clears throat> august 2020 and i remember sitting in a room wait i was i was in a room with some quite well respected people within the company i don't know what i was doing there but i was there anyway and i and it had the the head of broadband and the head of connectivity in the room and 
I just I bowled Scotsman went up to the guy and went, What's the next thing that's coming, mate? I know that there's do you know, like you're gonna tell me. Uh, and he had said basically that what they see is the vision is is that they'll have one hundred percent coverage throughout the UK and you'll have a basic access to the internet for free. But yeah. then if you want to go on Facebook, Twitter, like social media pack, that'll cost you five or a month. You want the gaming pack, that'll cost you another. And you can add on these sort of premium subscriptions to the, the actual access to the the bandwidth, but there will be a basic internet package kind of in the, the way that Japan have got accessible, free free of charge at point access, but then you can buy other add-ons. And I, I was actually like really enthusiastic. It was like, that's so good that we're going to, that, that we're going to give that to people. Um, and it sort of ties into what, what you're saying there. Um, so that's good to hear. So I think they're, besides, I think they're up for it because also if you give someone on a low income, your 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 package is good quality package, and they hopefully you know they get trained, they get they get promoted in their job, they get a greater income. They're going to spend that money with your company. You're actually you're you're investing in your future customers. Yeah, so, and I think that's an that's an important point to make about that. And um, I think it kind of comes back full circle. We're talking about like austerity and the benefit system. Is is that one of the things that people don't really understand is that you actually get money out of giving people money. They'll spend it. So, like, poor, you know, if there's people that are and they need money and you give it to them, they don't just hold that money and don't do anything with it. It goes back into the market because they go and they spend money, um, which I think is, like, a sort of important point. But, like, you're saying if um, Sky, Virgin Media, BT, whoever it is that is the first company that does this, they are going to get so much loyalty for the people that access that. They're not going to go... I'm going to switch this guy because I'm sick of BT. They're going to be like, no, I'm going to stay with BT. They gave me a service. I'm going to stay with Virgin. I'm going to I'm not advertising anybody. I'm going to stay with these, this company because when I needed it, they gave it to me. So I'm going to put my money into them. So I have to say, I'm not really a flag waver for any of these companies particularly, but, um, but yeah, hopefully they'll do the right thing and more regulation might be required to make that happen. Yeah. The, the, Scottish, the British government actually built the infrastructure and they they uh, profit off of that infrastructure. You know what I mean? Like they built the fiber optic networks and the BT copper network. So they should give it back to people. Do you know what I mean? That's just profiteering for stuff that we built. And I mean we as in like the raw. It's already you know. yours. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm conscious of time getting on a wee bit. Um, we're at the sort of forty minute mark. Um, I want to just cover one last election question before. We, we just sort of maybe briefly touch on some recent events, all right? Um, and it's just like, in the event, because again, we've asked all the other candidates, in the event you're re-elected, what are, what's the, say, the one or two main things that you're looking to achieve on a sort of personal level? I suppose it's, it's all politics is local. So what I see here, I'm sure, goes for, it would go for every constituency MSP across the country, but never more so in Maryhill and Springburn. It's the North's time in Glasgow with the regeneration of Sight Hill and lots of new build social housing taking place. Lots yeah. more still needs to happen, I should point out. But whether it's at, at Hamilton Hill or it's Cowlairs or it's Coman Barrisdale and Lindale, new exciting plans for that down, down in Mary Hill, right across the constituency, there's regeneration happening. We have to complete that regeneration more homes for people, more affordable homes for people. Um, and I, I would like to make sure that is right across the, con- the constituency, but not just the homes, but the amenities as well. So the example I would give 
would be a couple of years ago, oh, two and a half years ago, we were sitting down with the Springburn Community Council and saying, well, what's our regeneration strategy here? There probably isn't one. Um, and I said, I know another community that had that same issue, and it was it was the Garden Guard, it was Royston. And the housing associations, and I was part of that conversation, they said, well, if the council don't have a regeneration strategy, we'll get our own. And they got their own, and they're trying to implement it now. They've got a new community centre, partly funded by the Scottish Government, the top of Royston Hill, an amazing yep. community hub that they've got there. Uh, and I'm proud that we've helped with that. I said the same in Springburn a, a few years ago. We had our regeneration forum. We've got a regeneration strategy. One of the first things was to get the Talisman pub demolished up, up, up at Balgary Hill, that the bulldozers are there. The bulldozers are there as we speak. Right? And, and the next step is how do we bring amenities to Springburn Shopping Centre as well? So not just how do we build good quality houses, but how do we build centres for the community, community hubs. So I want to see the completion of the regeneration of Mary Hill Springburn, Postle Park as well. We've secured some money to up, do up the shop fronts at Postle Park. The new houses at Hamilton Hill and Cowlers will make a huge difference. But how do we make sure the long-standing local people are connected to their communities and they have the facilities and amenities they need? So regeneration will be really central for me in jobs as well. How do we make sure uh, people don't just have a nice house in a, in a nice local community, but they've got employment, good quality, well-paid employment? I can see lots more about that, but I suspect you want to ask me about other things. But regeneration, not just the buildings, but the community and employment. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, like, I, I'll, I'll be honest, like, I would rather we spoke about, this is gain our platform to people that we want them to tell us. So, like, rather than getting into stuff that we want to talk about, like, how would how would the SNP or how would the Scottish government plan to bring employment back? Because I think that as lo alongside the UBI conversation comes this whole automation monster that's coming over the hill with automated cars, automated... I mean, we, we know all about it. I mean, me and Matt have spoke about it multiple times, but it, it looks like those types of service industry, Starbucks, we can already see the machines coming in where people go and get their coffee for a machine rather than a barista. McDonald's are doing the same, Tesco. These th That type of employment, which seems to be a very big employment, especially the working class, is getting smaller and smaller. Um, I would be interested to hear your thoughts on how we get employment back to a city like Glasgow and uh, how we, don't, we, we sort of buck this trend of things becoming more machine-led. Well, I suppose two things, and, and it's not just the, the 100,000 houses commitment, but construction will be crucial to that as well. Um, building and making and manufacturing things. So houses, um, but also we, we, we have to make where by 2040, there's a commitment to make sure every house in Scotland is carbon neutral, is decarbonised. That means the vast majority of our housing stock will not be new built housing stock. That needs retrofitted. That, <clears throat> that needs workers and trades and engineers and others getting in to do that work. So there's going to be massive job opportunities uh, going forward if we have the right level of investment, but also high-end stuff as well. I mean, I have to say, I didn't realise until a few years ago that uh, uh, Mary Hill's the centre of some of the satellite manufacturing uh, industry. So down at the science part, we're, we're, we're building satellites that, that go into space. We got the first investment from the Scottish Investment Bank came from there as well. So I don't, I don't just assume 
that working class communities are going to be doing trades. They can do high-end, high-skilled jobs as well. Yes. Incredibly talented. And quite often I think some people from so-called middle-class communities would be much happier having a trade and some trades people would be much happier having the, the, these, the, the, these other jobs. You know, yeah. It's doing what's the best fit for you rather than what you're expected to do. But let's invest. I'm a bit of a Keynesian at heart. I want, I want, to, I want to invest in infrastructure and build, create jobs, create wealth, and tax appropriately. Mm-hmm. All entirely pr- proven stuff. I just want to add that if anybody from Spaceport is listening, I'm available <laughs> for work because I'm just a boy of the Scottish Spaceport, man. We need to get somebody in just so that I can pitch them, I don't know, making teas or some shit. I don't know. Um, we were going to go into some other stuff. Um, what I'm going to do probably just try and reframe it slightly in relation to the question we've already provided you and, and say that in the last few weeks, obviously, you know, part of the debate ahead of the election has been about list parties. Now, I'm not going to name list parties or members of list parties or anything like that. So I'm going to make Mary a sort of general point here, all right? Um, it's... <laughs> Sorry, Matt. I'm just laughing but... at the diplomacy there. I'm like, I'm not going to name anybody. Just, I'll just put, mad... I'll, I'll edit a name that runs, like, a few names that just run across <laughs> the bottom of the screen. And up. I, I'm flat, I'm flat. But no, there are a number of them, you know, they've seen a gap in what may allow them some sort of representation in Parliament. Um, and for me, it's about the efficacy of like both votes, all right? So both votes is the, it's, you know, in tablets made of stone in, in SNP terms, no one expects you to go against it in any way, shape or form. Um, but it has almost kind of left a gap that these, Let's say ragtag bunch of parties are now trying to occupy. Do you think there's a way at all that you could have cut that off before it became the issue that it is at the moment? So I suppose um, I, I don't know what you mean by, by cut that off. The, the oh, SNP well, I mean, became and still is a mass membership party. And, that, and that's an amazing thing. I think other parties would give their eyes teeth to have a, oh, a, a grassroots reach the extent that the SNP has. And when you've got parties that are, quite frankly, that massive, you get you get fallouts, you get you get disagreements, and sometimes people decide the best place for them is no longer in that party and they have another strategy. Shock horror, the ind- with, without the independence movement, the SNP is nothing. But without the SNP, I'm not sure the independence movement will be moving moving forward either, and at all. And yeah. that, that's why that that's why, of course, it's both votes SNP for for myself. You vote for 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 what you want, not for how you might think an electoral system might throw up a result to your advantage. Vote for what you want, um, and that and that's always that that's been my view. When I joined the party as a teenager down the Vale of Leaven and people were shutting the doors in your face when you said you were for the SNP and you, mm. were, and you were lucky to hold your deposit, yeah. stand up for what you believe in, vote for what you want. If you believe in independence and independence movement and you want that delivered for me, it's both votes SNP. But folk are allowed to start new parties. I think strategically it's an error. But then I would say that folk are allowed to vote for different parties. Of course. Yeah. So, I don't have any anger in any of that. I've got disappointment, and and I don't I don't think it's necessarily the best or the right way forward. But I would say that 
you know. Um, yeah. And the vast majority I speak to, people I speak to, take the same view. But I don't have any ill will or malice towards anybody. No, of course. I hope that wasn't something you took as an implication. Yeah. To be fair, do you know what? I think that's about as reasonable an answer as we'll likely ever get on it. <laughs> so, you know, thanks for that. Like, vote for what you want is perfectly logical yeah. and, and, and right in line with it. Um, what about, I, um, sort of, just before we move on for this, what about, like, the political opportunism that we're starting to see? Like, people are starting to, well, again, we'll no name names, but people are starting to come up um and try and stoke this unionist um, craving for something and they're starting to share like tactical voting. This is where you should vote. Um, and I'll, I'll probably cut this out. I'm talking about George Galloway, basically. Like this guy has come up for England as like he's knight in shining armour, apparently believes in Irish republicanism and the Palestinian movement and their right to their freedom in the Middle East. But for whatever reason, because we're Scottish, we don't deserve it or that we can't do it. But um, do you do, do, does that leave a bitter taste in your mouth when somebody who's clearly dedicated their political life to things that they believe in? Now, this is the point that I'm going to sort of make, not just to like kick fuck out of George Galloway here. You believe you clearly believe in what you're saying, and that's why you're like both votes SNP surely. But what about the grifters that are starting to appear in Scottish politics and they're trying to almost find their place? Like, oh, this is my chance to propel my own political career. Does that leave, like, a bit of taste in your mouth to see that happening? Um, I think it's entirely predictable, un un unfortunately. And uh, the, the best thing to do to George Galloway is to ignore about George Galloway, is to ignore George Galloway. Yeah. People who people who hunt him, hunt him down and his supporters on Twitter, he loves the oxygen, he loves the mm -hmm. attention. Right. Why, why would you get into an argument with anybody on Twitter, irrespective of whether you, you're a unionist or a, or a independent supporter? State your case, be positive, and, and, ju and, just, and just put it out, and just put it out there. But can I just, something does really bristle with me. And it takes me from George Galloway. It's about internationalists who demonise Scottish independence. Yes. Scotland is a nation, no better or no worse. The word nationalist is not a dirty word, but when unionists use it, they use it as a dirty word. And when mm -hmm. they see things like stoking division, what they mean is, how dare you disagree with me? <laughs> and when they talk about separatists, what they really mean is they're defending British nationalism. And when you put that back to them, they get angry and they bristle and they're uncomfortable and they don't like saying Scotland's future should be in Scotland's hands because I'm not sure all of them believe it. And that is a really, really sad thing. Um, mm -hmm. But I know lots of people who are not yet convinced for Scottish independence, who don't define themselves like that. And what we need to remember is the independence movement should be reaching out to those people who don't define themselves in the, the character show that I've kind of developed around some of the politicians involved in this game. Yeah, we, yeah. That's why we shouldn't be tribal. We need to reach out. We shouldn't be bitter. We shouldn't be divisive. We should be open and embracing to those that are not yet persuaded to Scottish independence. But nationalism is not a dirty word. No. And independence is the natural state for 
any nation for any country. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, that that's a, what you've just said, Delman. Like, it is like, the, what is the perfect foil for negative politics? Is positive politics and actually like just proving people wrong? Um, I, I mean, I think as well, just as we begin the process of wrapping up, like the, the last of the questions we had, um, and, and it's not necessarily hark back on some of the like failings that we talked about previously, but um, the drug death crisis, um, this is something that again in previous episodes like UBI, we have discussed extensively. I'm an addict, Paul's an addict, like we've had issues over our lives, so it's something that is important to us both personally. Um, now, I know the Scottish Government, and, and again, credit to them for this, actually held their hands up and went, do you know what? We actually did get this wrong, and now we're going to try our best to put it right. I think they've made something like £50 million worth of funding available for the year ahead, um, about, obviously, rehab places and stuff like that. All welcome. Um, we were speaking three or four weeks ago um, with a representative for Cisco Recovery, who work in more prisons, um, and kind of asked that your clients are probably the people who I would expect to be able to access these funds and make use of them for the recovery. Um, and, and, and our reaction wasn't hugely encouraging for Natalie. Um, how, do we, how are we going to guarantee that this money's getting to the right people and things like red tape are they actually going to hinder their ability to make use of what's out there? Can I just say, I hope we can run on just a little bit later because this is such an important, important question. Uh, Natalie Logan, you're talking about, yeah, yeah. Natalie Hogan is a inspiration. She she absolutely is um, doing an amazing job in the communities I represent. Um, she's right that there are, let's say, there's cultural issues with alcohol and drug partnerships, which I would say, if you've had a strategic focus for a number of years, and that's not particularly been working. Let me rephrase that. It's working for some people, but it's clearly not working for too many others. And you're wed to that direction of travel. It's really difficult, really difficult to, you know, if you like steer a different course or, yeah. or to open up. Uh, I don't want to say too much about Cisco and Natalie because I've been working with them. Of course. And I am really hopeful that Glasgow's ADP will realise that, well, there, there is new funding available, quite frankly. I don't get to decide who gets that new funding, but I am really supportive of Cisco having a significant amount of funding in terms of supporting pathways from prison back into the community for people who are in recovery uh, for, and being best placed as credible, valid and authentic voices within communities who can have individuals who are living with addiction or in recovery open up to and talk meaningfully about what a practical and empowered recovery looks like, mm. whether that's heroin-assisted treatment, whether that is reduced methadone, whether that is residential rehab, where, where, you know, whether it's super, supervised uh, um, overdose prevention facilities or, or whatever, or a combination of all of them. People mm. like Natalie and the, and, and the people she's got around her are really well placed to build those substantial relationships with people most at risk, quite frankly, of dying in some of the communities I represent. 
And I hope some of this new money, it's £250 million over the lifetime of the coming parliament. So it's not chicken. So sorry, £50 million a year rather than yeah. Apologies so, there. No, 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 don't apologise at all because the number becomes irrelevant if it's not well used. And I'm pretty sure that will be Natalie's point because it's not the numbers that matter in terms of the finances we put in. It's the number of people whose lives we support and lives we save. And the Scottish government, it's self-evident we've not covered ourselves in glory at that. In fact, that's just an understatement. We've, we've, we've just not been good enough. There's been an acknowledgement. Um, and more people at Natalie having an input into policy would be very welcome. I mean, again, well, the absolute fucking perfect answer. I mean, if I wasn't already on for independence, I mean, you'd have absolutely fucking walked out here with my vote today, and they bother man. Like, independence. The other one, and you did touch on it, obviously, it's been in some Twitter feeds in the last 24 hours or so, is the the Safe Consumption Room Pledge for uh, Peter Kraken, who's also, I think, standing as a list candidate, one of, one of the less lunatic fringe, um, really. There, I know it's a single issue that he seems to be campaigning on at the minute, but, I mean, is that something that you'll be behind or that the SNP themselves will be behind? So, so all I had, only the, someone tweeted me yesterday and someone emailed me today. I've not had a chance to get back to either of them, and I will get back to them. And I was trying to look at Peter's uh, draft bill on, on my phone. I have to look at it on, on my <laughs> laptop, look at it properly, right? So what I, what I can say, look, I support what Peter's doing, okay? In fact, he should not have to be doing it from a van. It should be a strategic NHS support yes. right across Scotland. And the SNP agrees with that, and the Scottish government agrees with that. The bind has been whether it is legal or not legal. Um, and Peter, I think, believes he's got a bill that would make it legal, I, I haven't read it. I, I generally don't know. I just became aware of it the other day. Yeah, he's been working with the Governor Law Centre by the looks of things, but I've not read the full text of the bill myself. So uh, what I would say is I also, someone also met with just before the dissolution of, of Parliament, actually with Natalie uh, Logan, was uh, Angela Constance, the, the new drugs minister. Yeah. And she is tasked officials to look to find out within the powers that exist to think imaginatively about how we can just make this happen as well. Mm -hmm. but, um, I'm hopeful it doesn't require one individual to bring a bill forward in Parliament that may or may not uh, be legal in terms of the powers of the Parliament. The yeah. only should be in government to look to see how we can do this. Mm -hmm. uh, and I have no doubt that if we can do it, Angela will make it happen. So Peter's got my goodwill, but shock horror, I'm, I, I, I'm supporting the SNP at the elections, but I think, the, I think the pledge I would give to Peter is that should he not be re-elected, so should he not be, be elected and clearly have support the SNP at this election, his ideas and thoughts won't just disappear because he started something that uh, government is directly looking at. Yeah. And I'm sure SNPers in the back bench, such as myself, and opposition MSPs will be looking at it as well. So I'm not sure what pledge I am or I'm not signing up to. But if, okay. I'm signing up, if I'm signing up to doing everything we can within the Scottish Parliament for safe consumption rooms, it, it's clearly a yes. I'm with you. Superb. I really enjoyed that. Um, Bob, we just want to say thanks for coming on the day. Like, best of luck with the election. You know, no disrespect to any other candidates, but 
you've got my vote, so you've got to start a one. <laughs> can, I, can I also say something? Actually, um, the, p- people may not believe this, but I actually quite often like the other candidates. We just come from different positions. I might not always like their politics. In fact, sometimes their politics can be a bit closer to yours than than people are willing to admit. I might mm-hmm. excuse the from that, that one, I should point out. But, um, yeah, so... I lost my nomination papers the other day and I basically said I hope every candidate has a safe and respectful and happy election campaign irrespective of the result but but here's a shot, we're all fighting our own corner so I'm asking folk to vote for me in Hill and Springburn and I'm asking for both votes SNP and everyone should just go out respectfully put a positive campaign for whatever their perspectives is for their constituency and for Scotland and this is a brilliant podcast so thank you for letting me take part in it Oh, thank you, mate.